Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 334. Just getting back from an incredible week at the Gasparilla Invitational in Tampa, Florida, and I'm leaving again very soon, but wanted to drop this very special episode as quickly as possible. The members at Palmasia were out in force for the entire tournament, but that last day was one for the record books. Perfect weather and a two-hole sudden death playoff at the end. Yeah, perfect recipe for a special day, and I'm already looking forward to heading back next year for the 70th Gasparilla Invitational. My guest on this episode is the newly crowned champion of the Gasparilla Invitational, Charles Fitzsimmons from London, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Fitzsimmons, more on that later, he was able to outlast the stacked field of mid-ams and senior ams at Palmasia to come out on top. Now, the phrase clutch gets tossed around a lot in sports, especially in golf. Charles knows a few things about getting into the right mindset to produce clutch shots. Kind of like that third shot on the last hole of regulation that would produce a birdie to get himself into the playoff that he would ultimately win two holes later. Fitz has an impressive playing resume that includes two Canadian mid-ambitter championship titles and his ability to craft a solid mindset on the golf course. Well, here's why he's so good at that. He's a performance coach with a PhD in sports psychology. So when he isn't working on his own game, he's working with other golfers at all levels. He's even working with hockey players in Canada. So this episode recaps Doc's win at Gasparilla, but you're also going to take away some helpful tips on how you can improve your own mental preparation before your next round of golf. So tons of great stuff in this episode. Before getting started, just a couple housekeeping items. I'm heading back out on the road, and this time I'm off to Mexico for the Cabo Collegiate. First time heading to Cabo, looking forward to a great tournament with a super strong field. Tennessee, FSU, Texas Tech, and Vanderbilt, just to name a few. Should be a great time. You'll see plenty of content from Twin Dolphin Club. Make sure you're following Cabo Collegiate on Instagram and, of course, all of the Back of the Range channels. Finally, I don't post a ton on YouTube, but I just want to remind everyone that the entire seven-episode series that we shot at the 2022 U.S. Amateur Championship is available on YouTube. It was a big project that required a lot of help from some very talented people. There is simply no way that project would get done without the help from Peyton Gore, Michael Meek, Mitch Phillips, and especially Gary Widom. So please go check that out when you have a chance. And again, the best way to find that, the merch store, all the episodes, everything you need to know about the Back of the Range, best place to go is thebackoftherange.com. All right, let's get started with this episode. Thrilled to welcome the 2024 Gasparilla Invitational Champion, Dr. Charles Fitzsimmons. Sir, how are you? Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm I'm doing incredibly well. I'm uh, I'm just kind of still letting everything sink in. As you should. It's been a little bit of a whirlwind. Um, last time we saw each other, you were kind of uh, coming off the green on 18. You're being whisked away to uh, trophy ceremonies, and then I'm bothering you with a bunch of pictures, and you got to get to the airport. So 
We're, we're talking the uh, the Tuesday after the victory on Saturday at Palmasia. Have you had a chance to, to let things sink in, calm down, get your bearings? Uh, where are you right now, actually? Yeah, so I'm, I'm back home in, in King City or just north of Toronto in Canada. Um, and, and I haven't had a big chance to, to really let it sink in yet. Uh, as you said, I was rushing right to the airport to catch my flight home because I actually had two days of work in another city uh, not far from here on, on Sunday and Monday. So it was, uh, it was a very, very quick turnaround and right into to meetings with clients all day, uh, you know, helping athletes to, to grow and get better. So it's been a busy couple of days, um, but I've, I've had a, a couple of little moments where I get to just take a moment and, and smile and reflect and say, wow, that, that really happened. Nothing reminds you that you're a mid-am golfer with a regular job when you come back from a tournament victorious and you have clients waiting for you that probably aren't really tuned into what you just did a couple of days ago. Is that fair to say? <laughs> very, very fair. Yeah, mo- most of them were just like, oh, you, you look a little tired today. What happened? I was like, oh, I just got back from Florida. They're like, oh, good. Okay, make us better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're, they're more concerned with themselves. So we're going to obviously talk a lot about that we're going to talk about Gasparilla. We're going to talk about your profession. I think it's a fantastic story, but let's let's kind of actually talk about the Gasparilla Invitational. This is your third appearance there. Uh, you had a great finish last year, top 20 finish. But when you've played a handful of these, it's so hard to explain this tournament to people that aren't there. It's so hard for mm-hmm. people to understand that, you know, how do you have a the equivalent of a tour event for mid-am golf on a 6,300-yard golf course. None of that makes sense on paper. How would you describe the <laughs> Gasparilla Invitational to people if they're getting ready to go there for their first time, whether it's just a spectator or even to play? You know, from the player's perspective, it's probably the hardest 6,300-yard golf course that I've ever seen. Um, there's a there's a little muni where I went to school that's, that's a little bit similar, just in, in crazy ways, but um, Palmasia is just such a cool spot. Like you do hit every club in your bag and yeah, there's chances to make birdies, but there's chances for some really crazy stuff to happen and some big numbers, especially around the greens, the greens are the defense and, you know, they had them running, I think over 13 or I feel like in the afternoons with when they cut them after the, the morning shotgun, they got closer to 14s and tucking pins. So it's just a, it's just a great test of golf and, the the atmosphere the members treat you just so amazingly they're they're so thrilled to have you they're so welcoming um and and from a spectator's perspective i kind of think of it like the the mid amateur waste management yeah. it's uh, it's quite the party it's a, it's a great time and uh you know sometimes it seems like kind of golf is just happening in amongst the party so it, it's it's so much fun to be a part of and uh you know to play in that final round and, and even throughout with the, the galleries and, and people having so much fun and love and watching some good golf is uh it's just a really cool experience for for mid-end golfers because it's it's so rare now not to put you uh on the spot right out of the gates but you know this tournament believe it or not i know people are going to find this so hard to believe in mid-amateur golf in a, in a membership that's so welcoming there's a little bit of a party atmosphere to this tournament uh there's no shortage of ways <laughs> to uh tie one on there's parties every night. There's beer tents all over the golf course, which I think, you know, it's funny. I saw a huge gallery near, I think, 13 when there was no golf being played, but mm-hmm. there's a beer tent. So if, in case anyone's confused, yep. yeah, that that's why they're, they're out there. So um, is your approach to this tournament, 
I got to stay away from that. I got to lock in and focus. Or do you embrace that a little bit more than maybe, you know, like a Canadian mid-am or a U.S. mid-am or another tournament? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I guess you could say, unfortunately, I, I try and keep it the same as, as any of the bigger tournaments. So I'm, I'm not engaging in, in a lot of the, the, the fun activities in the evenings uh, as much as uh, maybe I would be if, uh, if it, you know, if I wasn't trying to, to play as well, or uh, maybe if I had a bad first round and, uh, and things were a little different, then I might've had a little bit more fun. It, it also works out that while I'm down there, I'm still coaching athletes uh, over zoom and stuff like that. So unfortunately, even in the evenings, even if I wanted to go over, I couldn't cause I was working, working with clients back home and, and all over the world actually. So um, yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't able to, to really get into the festivities this year uh, as much as I, I, I like to. Um, but yeah, I try and keep it pretty solid because uh, I just know from my past experience that if I have a little too much fun in the evenings, uh, my, my game tends to suffer the next day. There's not a big, uh, there's not a big market out there for a performance coach that slurs his speech in the evenings. Is there? <laughs> no, that I, I don't think that would go over well with, with clients and, uh, uh, be particularly well received. Okay. All right. Just wanted to, I, I didn't think there was a big market for that. Um, but I just wanted to check with you now. W- let's, let's there's, talk a little there's bit. There's probably a very specific, there's probably a very specific market for that. You know, a couple of, of mid end golfers, I think would really appreciate that, but well, 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 play, See, the, the well, high performance players. Yeah. Maybe it would be less. So putting, uh, putting the different uh, phrasing to high performance. Anyway, we're going to move on. Um, but let's, let's make sure people understand what you do. You're, you're talking a little bit about your coaching. We're going to get into that in detail a little bit later, but, uh, let's, let's give a baseline for everyone listening. Describe what you do as far as performance coaching, Give me an example of some of your clients. Yeah, so um, you know the simple way to describe it is a, a mental coach or a mental performance coach. So my my PhD is in, in sports psychology, but in the realm of kinesiology. So it's all about performance enhancement. So basically, I work with athletes who are generally happy and healthy, and, and teach them skills based in psychology to enhance their performance and to enhance their fulfillment with their their sporting journey. So. Um, I, I work with a lot of golfers, high performance golfers, including some guys um, out on you know the big tours in the world, uh, all the way down through through younger amateurs and developing athletes. Team Ontario uh, is our our provincial team here, our high performance junior team that we work with, um, really trying to develop players to to get onto the biggest stages in golf. Um, but I also work with a range of other sports. Obviously, being in Canada, I work a lot with hockey players, including hockey players in the OHL. Uh, and beyond as again, well as younger players, uh, but also work with a number of other sports and Olympic hopefuls in uh, figure skating and ice dance and volleyball and all kinds of wonderful stuff that way. So it's uh, it's a wide range uh, of, of players, which is, I really enjoy it. It keeps, keeps exciting, interesting. Um, but of course my passion always comes back to, uh, to golf. Whenever I discuss the this topic on the podcast how do you get into the game of golf when i come across a, a guest that's from you know areas where the weather isn't necessarily conducive to golf year-round i always always find it fascinating <laughs> especially with canada I and mean, i'm sure you've got the question why aren't you a hockey player why how'd you get into golf but <laughs> but you don't have the year-round weather you don't have nope. the access and probably the facilities similar to what, you know, uh, you know, juniors in, in the States and Southern uh, climates have. So begs the question, how do you find your way to the game of golf? Yeah. So, uh, it was my dad. 
um, as, as with so many, so many golfers, um, my dad played golf, not, not particularly seriously, but, but casually, he was, you know, a pretty good golfer. He got down to single digits. Um, but, uh, when we were a little kid, we had a cottage just outside the city and there was a little nine hole golf course there. And, um, you know, my dad would go and play and I would just, you know, even when I was, I think I started when I was about two and a half, I, I just wouldn't let him go without me. And so I'd go and walk around and there was a, a local guy who would cut down old clubs and he'd cut them down for juniors. So he would, uh, you know, he cut, he cut down a couple of clubs for me and I'd go up and just hit balls around and try and putt on this, this little, you know, little nine hole golf course that didn't have fairways, didn't have bunkers. It was just kind of, <laughs> just kind of there. And, uh, and that's kind of where I got my start, even though, you know, I was playing hockey the whole way through, um, golf was always kind of my, my passion and, and what I really loved. Uh, even though I also still love hockey and, and still play hockey actively in the winters. So you're still playing hockey and you're playing golf. Yeah, I, I actually really, um, I, I really like a little bit of an off season. Um, I find, you know, I, especially because of the way the season works up here, um, I'm just playing so much in the summer and uh, traveling so much with tournaments and, and work and all that kind of stuff that, you know, come the winter, it's, I'm okay shutting it down for, for a couple of months here or there and, you know, playing hockey and just getting back in the gym and, and kind of doing things just to, 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 to move my body in a little bit of a different way and give my brain that little bit of a refresh. And I'm, I'm still fortunate. I get to head down south uh, for work a few times throughout the winter um, to, you know, to keep the game semi-sharp, um, especially to try and get ready for the Gasparilla. But uh, yeah, I, I like a little bit of time off just to kind of reset. So again, you're, you're, so you're playing golf, you're playing hockey, you're look, sounds like you're a multi-sport athlete. Uh, I have to ask, was there a moment in hockey as a kid where you realized, yeah, I'm not going to be a professional hockey player. (laughs) Yeah, quite, quite young. (laughs) I, uh, it was always the dream. And then, you know, as, as hockey started getting more serious, you know, as you're a young teenager and you're kind of deciding if you can move up in the world, um, it, it was pretty clear that, that that wasn't for me. Um, so even though I loved it and even though I thought I was pretty good at it, it just, uh, I, I was obviously better at golf and, and just had a little bit more of a passion for it. So even in the winter when I'd be playing hockey, I would be, uh, you know, hitting golf balls all winter and in the garage and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, uh, it, golf was just always, always where I was heading. Well, that's, uh, it's clearly paid off for you. Now, as, as I am known to do people that listen to the podcast, they know that I like to do uh, a fair amount of research before having a guest on. And I like to kind of get some facts sorted and get some dates sorted. So I know you played uh, a little bit of college golf in the States. I think just one year you came down Mm -hmm. to the United States, played one year, then went back home to Canada. So during my research, I learned that you played college golf at Western University um, in London, Ontario, Canada. I see this article, and I come across this, read it, and it says you were on the team from 2006 to 2018. And immediately, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a poorly written article. That's a typo. That should have been 2006 <laughs> to 2008. Do a little more digging. I realize that isn't a typo. You played college golf for over a decade. Now, many of yep. us mid-ams, uh, me included, wish they could have stayed in school forever. Me, for other reasons, as a, you know, not just golf, but um, you're the closest person that I have ever heard of ever accomplishing the goal of just 
staying in school forever. <laughs> so you're already chuckling, but I, I want to know how did you play college golf for over a decade? Yeah, it was actually till 2019. Oh, I'm um, sorry. So did, I didn't, mean, did I didn't, mean, to, I didn't mean to shortchange you a year. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, come on, you know, that was, that was a hard earned year. I understand. Um, so basically, <laughs> basically, I, <laughs> I did you, play for you, a year. How do you medical redshirt for 12 years in a row? That's that's a lot of injuries. No, I know. I know that's not it. There's no eligibility in uh, in university golf in Canada. Um, it's it's uh, set up as a sport where they want participation at all times. Um, it's, it's actually not run by our national university sports. So we have what's called U sport, um, which is the equivalent of the NCAA in Canada. Um, and, uh, golf in Canada actually isn't run by that. It's run by golf Canada. Uh, and so they run a, a specific university college championship. Um, and because of that, they just wanted full participation as they were getting it going. Cause that, that actually, that national championship's only been going since 2005, I think 2004, somewhere in there. Um, and so they just wanted to make sure there was full participation. So there's, there's no eligibility rules. And so as I was going through my, uh, all of my schooling, I just said, Hey, I'd want to keep playing. And the coach went, yeah, you're, you're our best player. So <laughs> if you want to keep playing, come on. So you get your undergrad in psychology, you get your master's mm-hmm. in sports psychology with a specialization in coaching. You have a PhD in sports psych. Is there anything else left? I mean, what, what else is there? Um, <laughs> is that about it? I mean, did, did you get like another master's as well? I mean, just how smart are you? And am I just screwing <laughs> this up by not calling you Dr. Charles the whole time? I mean, is this, am I showing you disrespect? Help me out here. Not, not at all. Um, I always welcome if people want to call me that, but uh, you know sometimes that gets confused with the the real medical doctor. So um, I did earn my my PhD, and and uh, you know I started my business when I was in my PhD. So my PhD took took quite a long time because I was kind of semi doing it part time um, while also playing mid am golf and and you know trying to to get really good. So. Um, uh, there was a lot of school in there, and it's, it's ironic because as a as a teenager, I actually hated school and, and almost dropped out of high school. So um, I went. My my mom always jokes. I went from the kid who she couldn't get to go to school to the kid who wouldn't leave school. There it is, <laughs> and uh, and just had a, a great time. But uh, no, I was fortunate that I, I found something I really was passionate about, and uh, and actually just loved to study and loved to be around in, in sports psychology and. Uh, you know, it was somewhat selfish in terms of I wanted to teach myself these skills just to get better as a golfer, but I also love coaching people and helping them understand the skills that that have helped me to perform so much better. How? What was your relationship with guys on the team? Because, you know, at, at some point, you know, at 23, 24, okay, but like when you've been on the team forever, how was the team camaraderie? Like, were you just the old guy in the corner or were like, were you sneaking in beer? Like how going to parties with them? Like how, what's that <laughs> dynamic like? Yeah. I always like to think of myself as, as young at heart. And so, uh, I, I, I think until maybe my last couple of years, I was right in there with the team, you know, partying and having fun and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, again, the drinking age is a little younger in Canada, so I didn't have to, to sneak them any beers or anything like that. But certainly, uh, you know, I was the captain and the leader. And, and so I was hosting parties and, and social events and that kind of stuff. And no, I, I always tried to, to keep engaged and, and have a lot of fun. Like I said, just kind of stay, stay young at heart. And, 
<laughs> just enjoy enjoy the time before real life. This is amazing. Like I'm guessing your friends that aren't you know aren't golfers or aren't on the team that when they find out how, what how you're well, first of all, hold on, let me see. How old are you right now? I'm I'm 36 right now. Okay, 36 right now. So you were on the team. Let's see, five. So for like from like age like what like 20 to 20 to 31 is that about right? Somewhere in that neighborhood, 19 to 31. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been nineteen to thirty-two-ish, somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, I mean, when you just, tell that would have been just before my thirty-second birthday. That's yeah. a, so when you're when people like ask like, so what do you do? Like you know, the typical twenty-six, twenty-seven-year-old is you know they got the entry-level job and they're trying to find their way and they're kind of you know you know that's kind of that time where everyone's kind of struggling to figure out their path and make ends meet. You're still in school, just playing golf and studying. I mean, there's gotta be some jealousy there with your friends. Yeah. I, I think, you know, people always kind of joke that I'm, I'm the, the Van Wilder of Canada. Yes, and, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I but, got, uh, I got you to say it before I had to, that's, that's good work by me. I'm not going to lie. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, of course the difference was I was actually going to school and yes. getting different degrees, but um, you know, I, I did have those, those moments too. Again, I was, you know, starting my business, my PhD, I had some, some difficult moments throughout my PhD. My, my, my original supervisor actually passed away in the middle of my PhD. So oh, wow. I did have some of those, I guess you could say kind of quarter life crises in, in through all of that, but it was in, uh, in a, I guess a bubble wrapped environment of, of university. So it was, uh, maybe a little easier to, to work through. So, yeah, I think, I think oftentimes people look and go, wow, that, that would have been nice. And I, uh, I feel incredibly fortunate that I, I got to go through that, but, uh, yeah, there were, there were still some bumps along the way in, in there as, uh, you know, every young person trying to figure out their life experiences. So, you know, I've asked other mid-ams, like, are you better now than when you were in college? But I guess that line is a little bit blurred for you. Do you feel that your <laughs> game, well, I mean, it just, you're, you're not, you didn't take like six years away from the game and, and you, you just continued on. Like, do you, do you feel that your game is continuously getting better? Not just because of the time you spent on the team, but also, I'm guessing you're just increasing your knowledge as far as your your mental approach, and maybe you're losing a couple of yards off the tee. But you must be just getting stronger and stronger every year. The more you um, uh, implement your 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 strong mental approach to the game. Yeah, I, I would say um, in 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 critical moments in tournaments, my game is the best it's ever been. Um, as, as you say, my, my, you know, I, I work really hard on my mental game and I work really hard on keeping up with the most recent uh, evidence and research. Um, and I'm always trying to, to learn and incorporate new techniques and uh, just trying to get better on the, the mental side. So, yeah, I think, you know, technically probably my, my game would have been better in, in, you know, at the beginning of my university career. Um, especially because I could just practice more, but, uh, but mentally now, uh, and, and my ability to perform in those big moments is just head and shoulders better. So, you know, being able to kind of handle, you know, for example, that final round of the Gasparilla, um, is, is just way, way better now than it's, I, I think it's ever been. So I, I've not had any mental golf, mental coaches, sports psychologists on the podcast. I've, I've been asked to, to have several on, I've always kind of, 
kind of shied away from it because I, I don't know how responsible it is to just, you know, throw a bunch of theories on, <laughs> you know, I just, I've always kind of wrestled with that. I'm like, okay, I, I don't, you know, this may work for some, but I, I'm going to kind of lean on you because this is clearly you're implementing these theories that work for you in a tournament in several tournaments. I mean, mm-hmm. you're back-to-back champion at the Canadian Mid-Am and the Ontario men's match play. So, I mean, clearly have the game. So I'm going to pepper you with a lot of questions and um, about this. And I think listeners would, would like to know some, so they'd like to know the answers to some of these as well. So, so Charles, like, look, when mid amateurs are, or any amateur golfers are working on their game, I mean, we can see tangible results when you say, okay, I'm going to go to the range three nights a week. And I'm going to get in the gym and work on my strength and flexibility. And, I'm, I, you know, there's all these different ways we can work on improving our game. But it's kind of hard for me and maybe listeners or anyone to kind of wrap their mind around, like, how do you work on the mental approach? Like, are there exercises? Are there pro- like, how do you how do you work on something like that? Yeah, it, it, it's such a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the simplest and, and most foundational practices that I work on that's associated with this area that I call new school psychology or acceptance commitment therapy is a foundational practice in mindfulness. And it's basically just to develop an awareness in, in a simple terms. Uh, you know, think about this in terms of like a breathing meditation or something like that. And the idea here is it's just a challenge to your brain to stay focused on one thing. In this case, your breathing to notice when your attention wanders to other things like your thoughts or your feelings or other distractions, and then just to practice bringing it back. And, that, that, that practice of engaging in the moment and being able to stay focused on what you're doing and, and allowing the thoughts and the feelings to just be there without taking all of your attention, um, but without also trying to block them out, uh, can be a really, really important foundational practice. But even that, sometimes people struggle to see kind of really obvious, tangible benefits in. Um, you know, if you're really paying attention, you notice there's a greater focus and a greater clarity, but there's some extra pieces that people can do to go a little bit further. And so this is where a, a company that I work with called NeuroPeak Pro comes in. And they do great, some great work because they've, they've basically utilized technology in a way where you can actually see those tangible changes occurring. So they have a, a foundational product called the Intel Belt, which is basically a specific kind of uh, breathing training. It's, it's called resonance breathing, and it's meant to create this optimal performance state in your body. And they've, they've gamified it through their app and through a, a piece of technology that's actually a belt that measures your, your breathing and your heart rate as you're doing it. And so you can see if you're getting better over time and you can see if your body is responding properly and getting into this optimal performance state. So it's, it's really, really an important part of, of what I do and it's something I do every day um, to put me into that peak performance state. And if you want to go up another level, they have basically um, an advanced form of meditation um, so they have something called neurofeedback training, which is basically where their uh, equipment is scanning the brain waves that you're putting out at a moment in time. And they create a customized training plan to help you get into this optimal performance state. And basically what happens is, is you're doing the training. And again, it's you know, through an app. Um, I like to do the training by watching TED Talks or, or podcasts and things like that uh, before I'm learning. And basically what happens is, is it's making sure your brain stays in that ideal state. And when it doesn't, uh, the podcast or the, the video turns off. And so your brain has to learn how to kind of get back to that ideal state to be able to watch the, the video that you want to watch. And so it trains your brain over time 
to be in this ideal state. So you can actually see the tangible results in the, the scores and the results in the app as you're doing the, either the breathing work or the brain training. And I, they're just a really, really nice complement to this foundational uh, mindfulness practice that I think is so, so critical for athletes to perform their best and people generally, to be honest. So essentially, it's almost like you're taking the mental training and trying to frame it around something similar to maybe going to the gym or hitting balls or having a practice routine where you're getting that immediate feedback. You know, I can go to the gym and track my exercise. I'm sorry. I just said out loud I was going to go to the gym. Anyway, that made me laugh. So, um, so like <laughs> one day, but yeah, yeah I've, I've, I drive past it. So, but I, but in, you know, I could track like, okay, I'm going to do three sets of 12 and I'm going to do increasing weight or I'm going to try and, you know, make 10 four footers in a row. So you're kind of implementing that into mental training and performance. So you can see some feedback and then measure it and try and improve on it over time. And, does that does that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, you nailed it. That is what 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 NeuroPeak does so well, um, and they work with guys uh, like uh, Jordan Spieth and other guys on the PGA Tour, as well as they were part of the Netflix documentary with Kirk Cousins. Um, so they they work with a, a wide number of, of really successful professional athletes, um, and I've just been for, fortunate enough to get connected with them over the last few years, and their training has has made a huge difference in my ability to. Uh, really dial in and stay focused. But yeah, as you said, what they're so good at is they're taking um, something like say a mindfulness practice where again, it's kind of hard to know if you're getting better or not. And they're quantifying it with technology and, and helping you go a little bit deeper to give you that feedback to say, you are getting better. You are progressing. The time you're putting in is helping. So it, it just adds a nice little piece to, to all of it. So again, I have my kind of foundational mindfulness practice, which is just a a breathing meditation I like to do, you know, in the morning or after workouts. But then I also love to do their, their Intel belt training, uh, combined with the, the neural feedback training. And I, I said, it just puts my, my brain and my body in such an, an optimal performance state. And, and, uh, I always see the difference in the biggest moments in tournaments. You know, I have a lot of parents of juniors and juniors that listen to this podcast. Is, is there kind of a, I know everyone's different, but is there a kind of a constant theme to what juniors are saying to you or what college players are saying to you that maybe would apply to, to someone listening? Because I feel that maybe a mid-am is going to have different issues than like the 16-year-old that has different kind of pressures on them. There's, let's say there's different contexts, but the, the challenges are, are kind of always the same. And, and so, you know, as we go into this, by the way, I'll, I'll give you some, some ideas about specific exercises. Like you said, going to the range and stuff and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of those kind of rough ideas that, that I would work on with clients. But to, to answer your question, there are, are kind of two fundamental challenges, and it's really one big fundamental challenge with human psychology, and that is that we're designed, evolved to survive in the wild. You know, we haven't evolved to play golf. <laughs> and there's, there's some biases from that. Basically, I mean, biases to, to seek comfort and safety rather than to, uh, you know, to put ourselves out and, and to try and thrive in the world. And, you know, that, that bias is, is there everywhere. And so uh, whether you're a teenage golfer or a mid-am or a senior or anyone in between, um, understanding these, these psychological biases that are survival advantages but might be, you know, thriving or performance disadvantages uh, and understanding how to kind of you know, rewire the brain or retrain the brain to, to try and perform in our modern world rather than living in our kind of prehistoric evolutionary world. Um, it's really what we need to do to, to help people to uh, 
to be better. And, and a big part of that, and, you know, this is kind of a cliche is just the idea of being present. Um, you know, the, the old cliche, one shot at a time, you know, is, is easier said than done, but it, it's incredibly powerful because the mind's job is to kind of go to the future and think about problems and bad stuff that could happen and to go into the past and compare to what you've, you've learned. And so it's, it's really easy for your thoughts to, to wander from, from the present. And, you know, if you're not really engaged in that shot and not really engaged in what you're doing, then uh, those, those thoughts can be very distracting from a performance perspective. I know one thing that juniors struggle with is the expectations on uh, that they have on themselves for results, whether they think that there's a college coach scouting them or a potential agent looking at them, or maybe there's a parent that's expecting a certain score. That's just one of probably many scenarios that you've, you've had your clients come to you with. Like I feel pressure. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the number sixth ranked player in the country, or, uh, you know, I, I played well here last year, or there's a coach that's coming to watch me and I, I got to play, you know, how do you help clients with stuff like that? Managing expectations. Yeah. So there's, again, there's kind of two schools of psychology that I work in and, and, you know, I kind of refer to them as, as old school and new school. Um, old school is based around what's called cognitive behavioral therapy and, that's really about managing those expectations, you know, kind of talking about worst case scenarios, helping players to realize that, you know, even if the worst case scenario plays out, they'll be okay. Uh, basically helping them to try and make them feel better. And as you say, managing expectations saying, okay, listen, you know, realistically, here's your predicted scoring range for this event. And, you know, this is what's kind of can happen. And so just trying to, to help them to look at things logically and to, in essence, make them feel less nervous or less anxious or less stressed. So old school is all about kind of managing emotions and trying to change the way we feel uh, in order to help us perform better. Um, new school basically says, you know what, it's kind of normal to worry about things. And this is based out of a school of psychology called acceptance commitment therapy. And it basically just says, you know what, it's kind of normal to worry about things. It, it's normal to have expectations. It's normal to do all these things. All we need to do is just be aware of, of how much we're paying attention to them or how much we're engaged with them in the moment and then how much we can kind of move our attention back to just hitting a golf shot, right? So you can kind of almost imagine in that case that those thoughts and those expectations just kind of turn into background noise and you go out there and you just hit a golf shot, you know, just like there's crowd noise in the background, those those thoughts can become kind of just noise in the background of your your head and it's there, but you don't really pay attention to it. And instead you're fully engaged with kind of seeing your target and feeling your swing. And, uh, you know, you don't need to get rid of those thoughts or those feelings. You can still just go ahead and do what you need to do despite them. Now you mentioned that you work with hockey players as well. And I'm just thinking right now, like, okay, there's a lot of downtime between shots on the golf course, a lot of time where you're stuck in your head and then hockey. I'm. it's a very fast moving game where you're, you're, you're trying just basically, well, first of all, you're trying not to catch an elbow in the face half the time, but <laughs> so how does your, yeah. How do you uh, co coach the mental uh, preparation for hockey players? I mean, are you trying to tell hockey players, hey, look, don't get mad at that guy. You don't need to stab him with, you know, take your skate off and beat him with it. You know, how, how do you approach that? I know that's terrible, but I mean, how, how do you, is there, this <laughs> is so bad. How do you approach that? there's a great old movie with Paul Newman called Slapshot that course, uh, goes into, uh, into all of that. Right. So that, that's always the typical <laughs> the way of, of looking at hockey in the old school way. But no, it's, it's interesting because, 
you know, to flip it on its head for a second, sometimes I, I try and get my golfers to actually play more like hockey players, meaning playing more reactively and more athletically in that moment. Sure. You know, in, in golf, because we have the time to think, sometimes it, we, we, we basically think too much, even though that's not necessarily what's going to help us to, to perform the best athletically. And there's some great research behind why that is from a kind of neuroanatomy perspective. But from a hockey side, I think you nailed it in terms of it's, it's really about the preparation. So it's about making sure that they are, um, in that right kind of focused state and ready to perform at the, at the get go. And then, you know, again, they do have that little bit of downtime between shifts and it's easy for a bad shift, a bad play, especially when the coach is harping on you to, to kind of linger. So for them, it's still that ability to kind of uh, be able to, to kind of leave those thoughts and those feelings on the bench or, or again, just kind of to refocus on that next shift and that next play and, and really dial in it. You know, the game forces it a little bit more because it is so fast paced, but at the same time, you know, those, those emotions from a, a bad shift are, are so powerful that even with the fast paced nature of the game, it can be very, very distracting. So the, the skills of, of refocusing in the present and refocusing on what you need to do and, and refocusing on the kind of player you want to be for that next shift or in golf for that next shot, uh, you know, they're, they're actually quite similar. We're talking about hockey. We're talking about mid-am golf. I feel like we're doing a disservice if we don't at least drop the name Garrett Rank in this episode. Um, <laughs> it, do you have a Garrett Rank story? I, I have, I have many. Um, okay. Rank, Rank and I played college golf versus each other way back when. Perfect. Um, so he, he, we we have many great stories along the way, but. Um, no, Rank's a great guy, and he was one of the first people to send me a message after I won. Um, you know, and obviously he's done some amazing things uh, in in the mid end golf world. And you know, I'm always sending him a message. Just he's he's such a, a great Canadian kind of mid end icon. So um, I'm trying to think of an appropriate Rank story. Why would you to, do such? Uh, a, why, share, would, but... why would you give me an appropriate one? What, we're all adults here, probably. Whoever's listening, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have not had Garrett on the podcast yet. I know it, it's going to happen. It always seems that when we see each other, he's in the middle of a tournament. And then when he's away, he has that other job that apparently he's afraid I'm going to talk about, um, you know, what he does for a living, which I think everyone knows, but we're not going to get into that. Of course, I'm making it sound worse by not mentioning it. I'm making it sound even worse, which is fine. But, um, but, yeah. but yeah, uh, yeah, he's. Yeah, go ahead. Give, give you can share whichever one, and if it's inappropriate, we'll we'll leave it in anyway. It's fine. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll 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 keep some of the the fun stories for for Rank and I, but um, you know, I, I I actually I'm I'm struggling right now, honestly, to to to, to find a story. But what I uh, I will say is, it's just been. Uh, it's been so cool to see him succeed the way he has and, and to, to represent Canadian golf the way he has. And obviously to have a, a really co- cool career and, and some of the spotlight that, that's come around with that has been, uh, been really, really neat to see. So yeah, I, I, uh, uh he's just been a, a great long-term friend and, <laughs> and just a good guy, but let's just say we've, we've had some fun over the years. Let's, let's move back to you. I, I really would like to, after listening to your thought process and your kind of your coaching um, beliefs. So uh, let's see how you implemented that during the Gasparilla. I, I remember final round um, 
you know, you're on 17, the par three, you leave it short in the bunker. It's a very challenging green with the pin uh, cut front right. Um, you know, you fail to get up and down for par. And I guess my question to start this is, did you know where you stood on the leaderboard knowing that you needed birdie to get into a playoff? I guess that's the first question. I didn't, I didn't know that exactly. Um, but I knew I was close. Obviously people were, you know, coming around all day. I saw the final group, uh, the scoreboard behind us and they, they were a couple over. So I knew I was in front of them. Um, you know, I think that's really always assumed somebody a few groups back is going to shoot a great score and, and move up a bunch. So, um, I kind of figured if I could get to something around even par or maybe under par, that would be, would get, would give me a pretty good chance. So no, I didn't, I didn't know exactly that I needed to make birdie, but, I assumed I was close because, again, people were coming up and asking me, hey, do you want to know where you are? Do you want to know what you are? And I just said, no, I just want to keep making, trying to make birdies. So, um, you know, that it didn't really change anything for, for me, my mindset. You know, I made a bogey on 14 and I just kind of said, okay, like, you know, let's go see if we can birdie these last four holes, right? There's, there's good shots in there. There's good, good opportunities with a couple of wedge shots. 17 is a pretty tough one, but. Otherwise, there's some some birdie opportunities in there, so I was just like, let's go, let's go see what I can do. And um, birdie 15, had a good look on 16, didn't make it. As you said, made the made the kind of tough bogey on 17, but just tried to go back out there and, and again on 18, just just you know go out there and, and try and make a birdie. And, and of course, it all comes down into really just one little shot at a time, as I said earlier. Um, so that, yeah, I may have had that thought of let's go make a birdie, but it was really just okay. I'm on 18 t. Let's you know, what's my target? What's my tee shot? Let's, let's hit a good shot here and, and see what I can do. And, you know, I, I did that, uh, to some extent and, you know, we could talk about 18 if you want in, in a kind of regular play. Yeah, of course. 18 par five at Palmasia finishing hole 477. Just by saying the yardage, um, everyone's thinking, Oh, just bomb it and just get there in two. And, and it's just an easy hole. That green is absolutely diabolical where, there are the bunkers are near impossible. Um, you know, left is, I mean, there's basically just a car path right next to the green. You hit that, you're out of bounds. There's water right. Um, and then this green is multi tiered, difficult pin placements all tournament long. I guess the best place, I mean, I'm almost, th- I mean, I've played the Gasparilla once and I was thinking to myself, I almost want to make sure I miss the fairway because I don't want to be tempted to go for that thing in two because there's so much <laughs> crap up there. How did you play the 18th hole all week? Yeah, so uh, I think I played it one under in, in regular play. I, I'd have to think harder about that. But, uh, but you know, for the most part, it was if I could uh, you know, get into a spot I was going to go for it. The wind was a little different in some of the days. So I don't, uh, I think I laid up actually, uh, all three days in, in regular play. Um, and I'm almost certain I did. Um, because as you say, like, you know, unless you've got a really, really green light, uh, shot in there, it just, there's so much trouble that can happen going forward in two, uh, where, you know, if you lay up and have a nice little wedge in it's, it's just, you know, life can be a, a lot easier. And, uh, especially with, uh, some of those, uh, pin placements, you know, you can control it a little bit better. Whereas if you go for it and end up in a bad spot, you know, in play, but, but in a bad spot, which is very easy to do, um, as well as how easy it is to end up out of play, uh, it, it almost makes it harder. So, uh, 
I, yeah, I, I laid up. I was forced to lay up in the, the final round. Uh, I hit it the, the green, uh, the fairway bunker just off the tee. I, I hit a decent tee shot, but it just it clipped just the edge of it. So forced to lay up, but that was fine. Um, and, uh, you know, was, was fortunate enough to, to get a really good yardage that I wanted in there and uh, hit a great little wedge shot in there to put her five or six feet. So you get up for that wedge shot at this point, of course, at Palmosia for the Gasparilla Invitational, they have a big jumbotron scoreboard right to the right of 18th green. Did you know before the wedge shot where you stood? I, I didn't actually, I, okay, wow. I could kind of see that it was saying the, the, the leader was underneath. Um, but, uh, no, again, I was just trying to make birdie. Um, I just figured if I make a birdie, that's kind of the best I can do either way. So it doesn't really matter what everyone else is at, you know, I'm just trying to hit a great shot in there and, you know, for me, again, I, I am always just trying to hit the best shot I can in, in every moment for to shoot the lowest score that I can. And, and where that puts me in the tournament um, is, is kind of not up to me. So it's just about, okay, let's let's see if I can hit a great shot. So I really just tried to kind of go through what I call my, my recipe to hit a great shot. You know, you can kind of think of this as kind of like a pre-shot routine, but it's a little different. Um, and so I was really just trying to dial into to my target and to my yardage and just seeing if I could hit a great shot in there and, and try and make a birdie. And, and see where that put me. So, so I didn't, I didn't know until I came up to the green and saw the jumbotron where I was. Okay. So this, this is kind of the question I've been trying to kind of gear towards a little bit. When you know, you have to make a putt to get into a playoff, or obviously we do make that putt and you get in the playoff, you know what you need to do to stay in the playoff. You know, you know when you have a result right in front of you, like you can put the blinders mm-hmm. on in the 14th hole you can put the blinders mm-hmm. on in the first and second round. But when it's staring you right in the face, you, you, you know, it's very difficult to ignore that. What's your mental <laughs> approach at that point when it's, I mean, it's right. It's match play. I mean, you're right there. You know what you need to do. How, what's your approach in, in that situation? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, usually I, I don't put on the blinders. I don't know why on that last round of the Gasparilla, I kind of wanted to just do my thing. It was just it was just a feeling I had that I just kind of wanted to go and do my thing and, and see where it put me. But usually I actually kind of like knowing where I am. So the Gasparilla was a, a little bit of an aberration that way. But, um, you know, on that 18th green, I came up and I saw leaders are at plus one. I was at plus two. And I had that, whatever, five or six foot birdie putt. Um, you know, what it, what it really came down to was all of my practice. Um, so not only my, my mental practice in terms of my, my meditation and my mindfulness stuff to be able to, um, you know, allow those thoughts and those feelings to kind of be there where I can still just focus on the, the task or on my recipe to hit that shot. Um, but also the way I challenged myself in my practice, you know, it's, it's going to sound maybe funny, but you know, Tiger talks about this where he'd be practicing and saying, Oh, this putts to win or this putts to do this. And we all do it as kids, but someone along the way would kind of lose it. Well, I, I don't, I, when I'm practicing, I'm hitting putts all the time. This putts to win the Gasparilla or this putts to, you know, get into a playoff or this putts to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm used to trying to put myself in those scenarios. I'm used to feeling those, those emotions and having those thoughts as best as I can. So when I got up there, it was kind of just like, Oh, cool. This is kind of, you know, the putts that I've been hitting all day. And actually before each round, I, I, I make a final putt that I, in my mind was to, to win a tournament. Um, and on the practice screen. So when I got up there, which is kind of like, okay, this is, this is what I've got to do. This is what I do, you know, in practice all the time. I've, I've made this putt, you know, a hundred times before. So let's just go and engage and, and try and roll it on the line that I see. What is this recipe you're talking about? You mentioned that it's kind of like a pre-shot routine, but not, can you maybe give an example of, is this something like before every shot? Is this kind of you like kind of absorbing all the information in front of you? Walk me through what that looks like. Yeah, so it's it's just kind of this this 
you know, metaphor analogy that I, that I use with my clients to say, you know, you need to know what you need to focus on to hit a good shot. It's, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to be kind of taken away by your thoughts about the situation and the emotions that come with that. So you need to have some simple focuses that can kind of ground you back in the present that you know that you've used in practice, you've used in previous tournaments that you know lead to success. So, yeah, you can think of it very similar to a pre-shot routine, but, you know, sometimes it engages a little bit more than um, just before the shot. It actually engages kind of through the shot. Um, and, and so as an example, the, the biggest thing for me is target, right? And yes, that's a classic part of a pre-shot routine, but there's so much research behind the importance of being target-oriented. And so for me, it's, it's really cueing into my target and making sure that I'm seeing and, and fully engaged with my target. But the, the reason I call it a recipe is because everyone's a little bit different. And, you know, just like there's a recipe for cookies, but some people like, you know, chocolate chips and some people like oatmeal or some people like raisins. It's just about saying that there's that flexibility that people can have uh, and, and can make little changes to over time, but there's common kind of themes. And so, again, you know, for me with putting, my recipe is to make sure that I'm totally committed to the, the line that I want to roll the ball over uh, and that over the putt, I'm, I'm comfortable with where the line is kind of going. And then I'm just trying to really have my eyes and my brain engage with that spot on the hole where I think it's going to go in and then just trying to roll the ball on the right line with the right speed. So golf is so easy when you explain it like this. <laughs> That's what I, what I, what I say is my number one rule is golf is hard, um, but we can make it, we can make it simple. It's never going to be easy, uh, but we can make it kind of simple. And the idea here is that if you can figure out this recipe to hit a good shot, a good pod, a good chip, whatever it is, and you can practice it a bunch, then, you know, when you get out there, it's just kind of like, Oh, I have to do this thing that I've, and a thousand times before and, and know that I play well doing it. So it, it, it does simplify things as, as much as possible. I've always said that, or one of the things I always thought is, you know, once you hit that perfect shot, you, then you try and beat yourself up and to understand why you can't do it all the time. And that's, that's always been one of my challenges. You know, I, I, I've, yep. I've done this all the time. Why can't I do it? when it counts or why can't I do it all the time? Or, or like, how did I just, how did I have it figured out yesterday? And now today it's gone. That's one of the things that's so frustrating yep. about golf. Is it ever? And, uh, you know, I think the, the way that, you know, science would kind of say to look at that is to say that, to put it bluntly, uh, those shots in those days are luck. <laughs> What, what you're actually trying to do is hit an average shot for your skill level. And, you know, that's where most of your shots are going to be. And that's what the true representation of your skill level is. And so that's what we want to work on. Yeah, we want to move that average better over time. But, but really what you're trying to hit is an average golf shot for, for your skill level. And, and every once in a while, you're going to get lucky and hit a great shot. And every once in a while, you're going to get a little unlucky and hit a bad shot. But everything in between is actually where you kind of live. And when you kind of take that perspective change a little bit and just say, you know, I'm going to let the great shots fall where they may, and I'm just going to try and hit, you know, my kind of average shot. And, and you know, I know I can play pretty well doing that. Um, and then when a great shot happens, I'll, I'll try and take advantage of it. It, it. it kind of changes things a little bit in terms of always trying to seek out something and that expectation and that pressure to perform rather than just going out there and knowing what you can do. It sounds to me, and not not trying to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me that maybe golfers think they're better than they actually really are. <laughs> it's it's um, it is it is one of the challenges sometimes 
Um, <laughs> Do you have to you tell know, clients they're, they're, like, dude, you're not, you're not, you're not that good. You're just, you just be, <laughs> be, you're not that, just be happy with what you have. Well, what, you know, from a, a simple perspective, you can look at, even if we just look at say round score. Okay. So there's some great research on, you know, what you can expect in a round of golf. And, you know, there's some research, for example, in the NCAA that shows, especially for freshmen, you know, in a tournament season, the range between their best round and their worst round score is 18 shots. Now well, they can go out there and shoot 64 and they can go out there and shoot 82. Okay. And that's, that's for some of the best golfers, you know, in the, in the country, they're, you know, they're, they're division one NCAA athletes. And what you start to look at there is to realize there's, there's a great variability in, in golf score. And as you start to understand it, you can actually break this down into statistics and you can use somebody's handicap and their previous scoring with the course rating and actually give them a predicted scoring range for a day where you can say, Hey, you know, based on your handicap, this is where you're going to be most of the time. Uh, I call this my 20, 60, 20 rule. It doesn't, it, there's a, a framework in statistics around this based on what's called a normal curve and the standard deviations and all kinds of fun mathematical stuff that way, which doesn't perfectly match to 20, 60, 20, but 20, 60, 20 is easier to remember. And it basically says 20% of the time you're going to play great. 60% of the time you're going to play average and 20% of the time you're going to play bad. And you can actually calculate what those ranges are based on your handicap and the, and the course rating. So you can say, Hey, and I, you know, when I was, I was just down at a training camp with team Ontario, we were in Florida playing a tournament and a bunch of the kids were upset. And, you know, for the ladies, they were playing a course that was rated at 75. And I said, listen, you know, you shot a couple of rounds at 77, but based on the course rating and everything, like that's pretty much you as a plus one plus two handicap, which is exactly kind of where they should have been. So, you know, yeah, you may not be happy with it, but you played two, statistically average rounds and you know okay if you're unhappy with it then we need to work on the skills to get better but you know you can't kind of expect something different than what your skill level says you are so you're not just improving trying to improve their performance you're also managing expectations half the time as well it sounds like it, it is it it's keeping things realistic um, yeah, and just understanding yeah. again like a, like i said golf is hard and, and there's a lot of stuff we can't control. You know, we talk about there being four skill pillars, right? Mental, physical, technical, and tactical. But then there's that fifth pillar of, of uncontrollability, you know, luck basically. And, and, you know, that, that happens in crazy ways. You know, there's dimple error in putting. Like you can hit the wrong side of a dimple and that can make the ball go fractionally offline. And that's just something that, you know, physically we, we can't control. It's just the physics of the, the face and the ball interaction. is just, it's impossible to control that. So, you know, one day you can get some, some good dimple error and one day you could get some bad dimple error. And, you know, that can lead to a four or five swing shot difference. And even though you as a, a golfer and your skill as a putter hasn't changed at all. So starting to recognize some of those pieces, um, yeah, I think gives you a lot less intensity in terms of, of the way you tie your skill level to any one round score. I am blaming every missed putt from now on on dimple error. <laughs> because Dr. Charles Fitzsimmons said I could. That's I, I'm t- that's what I'm doing. Um, no. Oh, that damn dimple error got that's, me again. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's not my fault. Why would I blame myself? That's just that seems that. Why would I damage my psyche by blaming myself for anything? I'm going to blame dimple error. Yeah, of course. You know. Yeah, of course. There's in in real. There's a there's a balancing act we have to go through. I know you're just having some fun, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome but to the back of the range. That's what right? we do here. So yeah. 
<laughs> it, it, it is important to know, right? Like you can go out one day and, you know, you know, like I said, make a bunch of putts and the next day miss a bunch of putts. And, you know, does that really mean that your, your skill changed as a putter that much in one day? I don't think it necessarily it does. And I think there's lots of research to say that, you know, our, our skill levels really don't change that much day to day unless we do things like, you know, drink too much the night before, as an example. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're, if you're doing the right kinds of things that they're going to make your body and your brain ready to perform, our skill levels really don't vary that much. It's, it's the kind of physics and the uncontrollable nature of some of the stuff that, that creates that variability in score. I would also imagine I'm I'm going to let you get out of here in a few and if I I would also imagine that do you have to kind of consciously try and turn your brain off when you're playing golf cuz all this stuff I'm just listening to this how I couldn't fathom knowing all this while you're trying to play golf I'm kind of simple I I I try and keep my brain as empty as possible at all times is it a challenge for you to turn your brain off while you go play golf Yeah I I would say it's not um so I use a lot of skills in mindfulness um, in that kind of new school of psychology. And it's not necessarily about turning off my brain. It's just about engaging with other parts of my brain. And so, again, you could think about the brain as, as multifaceted, right? You've got a part of the brain that thinks, you've got a part of the brain that sees, you've got a part of the brain that feels, a part of the brain that does, all these different pieces. So it's not necessarily about turning you know, the brain off. It's maybe about saying, okay, well, the mind is telling me all these stats and all this, this fun stuff around my thoughts. But okay, I'm going to go over and engage with, you know, what I can feel in the ground in terms of reading a putt, or I'm going to engage with, you know, seeing the line of the putt, or I'm going to engage with these other senses where that, that mind is still there, it's still maybe active, but it's not really what I'm, I'm kind of paying attention to. And, you know, the, the simplest way, and this is the way you kind of start to work on this stuff in mindfulness, is to realize that, you know, your body is constantly doing things, whether you're paying attention to it or not. And so the classic mindfulness exercise is, is around a breathing meditation, just, you know, trying to pay attention to your breathing. And what it shows is this, this breathing is always there, but the same way your thoughts are always there. And so it's not that I have to try and turn them off because you can't really, it's actually impossible. You just have to, the same way you don't pay attention to your breath when you're driving or you're living or doing life you know, you don't have to pay attention to your thoughts in those moments. You can pay attention to the, the target and the golf shot that you're trying to hit. So it's, it's not about turning it off. It's just about, you know, shifting the, the part of your brain you're using. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to get you out of here. I know you got to get back to your, to your clients, but uh, I was there. I mean, obviously I was there as you were accepting the, the massive, massive trophy there at Paul Messia. Um, <laughs> I'm, I don't feel guilty at all, but having you hoisted over your head for the picture, uh, pick, you know, so I, I think you're, you got your shoulder workout in that day. Um, yep. During the acceptance speech, you know, a lot of members, a lot of staff there, and I know you've given those speeches uh, many times. Uh, again, Canadian mid-amateur champion, Ontario match play amateur champion. I know you've done that one in college. Well, you had to have won in college. You were there for 29 years in college, so you had to win something, <laughs> I'm sure. But <laughs> but the, the, speech, the speech at Paul Messia uh, seemed very – heartfelt not saying others weren't but i yeah. it's almost felt like you really just to be able to be the champion of that tournament and what it does for the mid-am game that hit you pretty hard uh what can you tell me about kind of that that moment um obviously you're the champion all the things that come with it but that seemed like a very heartfelt moment yeah i i really try and be authentic you know in those moments it's so easy to want to thank everybody and and you know so i, I do try and keep keep those victory speeches short, but, but really just trying to, to speak from the heart. And, and in that moment, 
Um, you know, I, I was kind of overwhelmed just by how amazing the, the support for the event is, and, you know, coming down the stretch in the playoffs and, you know, people were yelling, go get him doc and go get him 50 or go get him Charles or all these kind of things. And, you know, it was just so cool to, to be a part of that. And, and I just felt so much, so much love and so much support. And you feel it, like I said, the whole week through um, at, at the Gasparilla. And that's what makes it such a, a special tournament. So I really just wanted to to, to, to express that gratitude and, and to commend the membership and, and just say, you know, how appreciative I was. And I, I know all the other players are of, of such an amazing experience that they create for us. And um, yeah, just to, just to really kind of show that, that genuine connection, that genuine appreciation. Fantastic performance. It's a great story. It was a great, great week. Uh, I loved, I mean, I'm sure at the time you're like, man, I wish this didn't go to a playoff. But uh, yeah, it was an exciting ending to a, to a great week. I appreciate you stopping by and sharing your story. Now, I, I know uh, I'm probably going to get hit up with like, all right, how do we get in touch with this guy? I'm going to put your email address in the show notes of this episode so people can reach out, ask you questions. Um, we'll talk about my finder's fee at a later date. But uh, for now, I'm glad you stopped <laughs> by the back of the range. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next year as the defending champion of the Gasparil Invitational. And, uh, and all the best, man. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate having me on and, and really appreciate all you do for, for supporting golf and, and you know, getting the good word out there about this amazing game that we play. So just uh, just really appreciate you and, and everything you do. So thanks again for having me on. And there you have it. Special thanks to Charles Fitzsimmons for joining me on this episode of The Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Everything you need to know about The Back of the Range can be found on the website thebackoftherange.com. I'm off to Cabo. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.